All right, King's Church, go ahead and open up your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, Ephesians chapter 1. And uh, if you need, if you don't have a Bible with you, I have the, uh, the scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning printed in your order of worship if you need that. And if you want a Bible, don't have one, we can fix that before you leave here uh, this morning. Um, so I know that we were getting cozy with the Gospel of John. We started the Gospel of John and really just explored the first chapter or most of the first chapter and, and looking at this glorious God-man, Jesus Christ, his, his two natures in the one person, the Godness of Jesus Christ and the humanness of Jesus Christ and how that has, and, and how that has changed us and changed the world. And y'all were just getting comfortable in, in the Gospel of John. Now I'm going to change it up on you. All right, now we're going to change it up on you. Because of this momentous occasion, the time where we get to, as a church plant, being a few years now, are looking to elect and ordain our own officers, elders and deacons. And because it's the first time that we've ever done this as a church, I thought it would be prudent for us to look at this topic together. And so what we're going to do is we're going to spend several weeks looking at the topic of authority, specifically in the realm of the church. And what does church leadership, where do we get these principles from? Because it's a big deal. And so what I'm calling this, this series that we're going to do is Life Under Authority. Okay, Life Under Authority, a deep look at church leadership. Life Under Authority, a deep look at church leadership. And today, the title of, of the message is God's Delegated Authority. We're going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be great for us to look at how, even from the beginning of the world... God has delegated His authority and what that, uh, what that is. And this is a big, a big, as a church plant of the ARP, the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, as y'all know, we've borrowed our leaders, our elders, from sister congregations in the Colum- wider Columbia area. And this is the time, by God's grace, where we are ready to choose our own leaders and move towards the establishment of this church. It really is a big deal. And you're going to see that as we go through this series, just how big it is. Just a quick note uh, on this that you received. We'll give you guys these again, but these again are your nomination forms. Uh, please do uh, spend some time in prayer. Read this. Talk to me or Josh if you have questions. And then fill this out. Um, one, of the, the, one of the only rules we had was... Uh, don't nominate your spouse. Jenny thought that was hilarious, by the way, right? And uh, what we're doing there is just avoiding awkward conversations at home. You know what I mean? Hey, do you like me, honey? Well, you know, I mean, so, but what we want to do is seriously, though, uh, put some time and prayer in to, to the election of the officers of this church. And as we go through this series, you'll see why uh, that is so valuable and also how it's beautiful, that God has, God has done this, okay? So just the general process for y'all, just because we haven't talked about this a lot, about what the election of elders is going to look like, I'm just going to try to remind us of this every time. There's going to be nominations where names will be put forward of men in the congregation. Then we're going to have an interview uh, with them and their wives if they're married. Uh, and then we're going to have some training. Several weeks will be spent in training in theology and just the specifics of what it means to be an elder or a deacon and also just ministry specifics, okay? And then there'll be an election, okay? Nomination, training, and then election by y'all because the hallmark of Presbyterianism, and we'll get to that, is you choose your own leader, right? You're not behold. When you submit to leadership that you have invested in, prayed for, um, and chosen, so just wanted to every time we get into this, 
just make sure, because it's our first time, what the process is and how it looks like, okay? Just so we're clear on that. So, I'm really excited about this uh, series for several reasons. One, the greatest institution that has ever been created is the Church of Jesus Christ. And it is what, other than save your soul, it is what He has done in coming to the earth and dying, is to create the church of Jesus Christ. He calls it his bride and his body, and how she is governed is very important. There's a lot of information in the Bible about church and how she should be governed. So how do we put that together? And then secondly, the successfulness and the faithfulness of King's church is dependent upon her leaders. We need to know that. So be in prayer for these officers. Pray for their personal holiness and closeness to God. Pray that that God would give the leadership team, the elders and deacons, wisdom, vision, and concern for the body and the lost world. And also pray this, that there would be a a bond of brotherhood and and humility between this group. Again, I'll mention this every time. So some things we're going to talk about in this series. We're going to, today is about the subject of authority in general and how God deals with that in humanity and in the earth. Okay? Then we're going to talk about elders, deacons, pastors. Uh, we're going to talk about Presbyterianism in general. Some of y'all, that may be a strange term and not know a whole lot about that. What is that and how does it work and how do you get it from the Bible? We're going to talk about women leadership and finally the topic of church discipline where God lovingly brings his people back from sin into fellowship with him. Okay? All right, so the first one we're going to go to today is looking from the Bible as to how God builds out a framework of leaders. Why do we even have church leadership in the first place? This is extremely important, uh, and we'll get to that in just a minute. But let me go ahead and read this passage. So what we're going to do today is I'm going to show you this passage. We actually won't get back to it for a long time, uh, or for, actually not a long time because it won't be that long. Chill out, all right? But we'll get back to it towards the end of the sermon. But just in the context of this passage, Paul is praying for, he's writing a letter to the Ephesian church, and he's praying for them, okay? And we get a highlight into what he's praying for them, and he's praying for their closeness to God, and in the middle of that prayer, he highlights the power and authority of Jesus Christ. So, hear this God's Word, Ephesians chapter 1, and I'll start reading at verse 15. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know Him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which He has called you, the riches of His glorious inheritance in the saints, and His incomparably great power for us who believe. The power is like the working of His mighty strength, which He exerted in Christ when He raised Him from the dead, and seated Him at His right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under His feet and anointed Him to be head over everything for the church, which is His body, the fullness of Him who fills everything in every way. 
grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. Pray with me. Lord in heaven, as we consider your word, as we worship you over your word, I would ask God that you would help us and help me uh, as we examine and worship you over your word. Help the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts together be acceptable in your sight, Jesus, our Lord, our rock, and our redeemer. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. I think this is such a vital study because it answers a lot of the questions that you're asking, that I'm asking, and that a lot of people around us are asking when it comes to the church. Some of these questions are like this. This question I get almost every single week as I meet with people. Why are there so many denominations? If, if this is what the Bible says, why are there so many denominations? A, lo- a lot of that question has to do with what people believe about church leadership in the church. Another question that people ask is, why are there so many scandals in the church? All these scandals that we keep hearing over and over and over and over again, why does that happen? A lot of it has to do with leadership in the church and how it's organized. Is it a healthy, is it biblical? The way that these churches are that have lots of scandals are doing this. And then another question that is maybe not deals directly with church leadership, but might just deal with your heart. Why do we have such an adverse reaction to authority? Whenever we hear that word, why do we bristle just at the sound of it? Okay, All of those things we think about and deal with in this subject matter of authority. Big idea this morning goes like this. Human flourishing can only happen in submission to God's authority. Human flourishing can only happen in submission to God's authority. To God's authority. Is seeking a life outside of God's authority will only bring pain and misery. I had a, one of my favorite professors named Dr. Bob Kara used to say, biases aren't bad. Bad biases are bad. Okay? Biases aren't bad. Bad biases are bad. In the same way, authority is not bad. Bad authority is bad. Okay? Uh, I'm watching uh, a documentary uh, right now about an economist named Thomas Sowell, and he, uh, he talks about uh, how he was converted, if you will, uh, from being a very a Marxist in the way he thought to very conservative in the way he thinks about the world and politics. And he says something very interesting. He says, you know, conservatives underestimate the power of the beauty of the ideology of a Marxist or or someone who's very left-wing politically. He said, the picture they paint of the world is beautiful. Love and unity, togetherness and sharing, all these things are beautiful things. He said, what converted me, my words, not his, is reality. The fact that the world isn't like that. And in the same way, when we think about authority and our bucking, if you will, against authority, some of the same things are true for us. We wish that things could go our way and that we didn't have to submit to authority and and that all of the things would fall in line and and that we were all wise and everything would everyone and would bow down to our wishes and desire, and then we wake up and realize that's actually not how the world is. We can't all be our own authority. We need authority. Okay? We need authority. There is a reality of living in the real world. And what I want you to see today are a few things. 
The first one is I want you to see from the Bible how God has designed you and me to flourish under His authority. I want you to see that. Secondly, I want you to see how He has masterfully and lovingly delegated that authority. Okay? And then finally, I want you to worship the King, Jesus Christ, and see Him as that. All right? Three points this morning, or actually four points. Number one, the disease of rebellion. Number two, the cure for that rebellion. Number three, the delegated authority of God, and then the implications of that. Okay? Disease of rebellion, cure for rebellion, delegated authority of God, and the implications of the delegated authority of God. First one, and I'll be briefer on these first two, okay? The disease of rebellion. Why do we bristle against uh, this question of authority? The first one is, is that in our time in history, we are conditioned more to this idea of the individual than any other civilization in the history of the world. Whenever people thought about, the history, thought about who they were in light of their society or, the, or whoever they were, they thought about it more of we than me. Historically, that's true. Uh, but because of the Enlightenment and several different things, in, in the Western world in general, we have a higher value on me than we than any other society in the history of the world. Now, just to be fair, the Bible teaches both. God calls us a people. In fact, what he did ever since the beginning was create a people. And Abraham, right? That was the, when God started the whole world, the whole uh, nation of Israel, rather, he did it from one man and created this vast people, the people of God. And yet also, God says to Israel and to the church, you are my child. He speaks to you individually, communes to you individually. They're both true. However, if we had a scale of what our culture, and probably us, values, we tend towards the individual over the community. Okay? So that's one reason. For a community to operate, there has to be what? Authority. It's gotta be, it has to be there. And so one of the reasons why we push back against authority is because of our value system of our culture, right, is against that. For example, in every single Disney princess movie, there is a rebellion against the parents motif. You notice that? Every single one. You, maybe you spend your community groups today talking about it, right? But every single one, there's a rebellion against the parents motif. And what's interesting about that is in almost every situation, in almost every one of those situations, the parents are making a bad call, Right? But what's the un- one of the underlying messages there is that authority is bad. You need to push against it. Right? There's this rite of passage that we're taught that we're supposed to have in our adolescence. And that part of that rite of passage is pushing against and pushing back against authority. Okay? The other reality that, that makes us bristle against that is there is a lot of authority that is bad. We see it all the time. In, in fact, a lot of our conversations sometimes, especially with friends, may center around the fact of how upset we are with our authorities, whether that's a boss or the government or church leadership. There is actual bad authority, but that doesn't mean that submitting to authority is bad. Like I've been telling you guys for a while now, I've been on a, a war movie kick, right? And there's several good illustrations that, that, I, can, that I can pull to, but uh, one of them is uh, We Were Soldiers. Mel Gibson is, is, is leading this group of troops, and they'll die for him. They love him. And if you study some of the great generals in history, there's a common theme that their men love them. 
and would follow them wherever he, that he said to go because he, they knew that he was a good leader. He was a good authority. He always thought about them first. In that movie, there's a great scene. He says, I'll be, my boot will be the first boot that hits the ground and the last one to leave. That's good authority. Okay? Authority's not bad. Bad authority is bad. Now, all of these notions um, are true. Uh, and if you were to get your own way and be your own authority in all aspects of your life, even if that could happen, and it can't, but even if it could, it still wouldn't work. You would be a bad authority for your own life. Think about it like this. If all you're ever doing is looking out for your own best interests and not the best interests of others, you know this to be true, that the most selfish people in your life are typically the most unhappy. You being your own authority won't lead to your happiness. There's actually a submission to the wishes and desires of others and serving and loving them that brings us personal happiness. Okay? The submission isn't a, a, a terrible thing. In fact, Jesus Christ, the King of, of all of that we can see and touch and feel and, and the stuff that we can't, submitted to the desires of the Father. It's not unmasculine or even painful to submit because Jesus did it. Right? Also, another problem with you being your own authority is the rest of the world doesn't recognize your authority. You, you go ahead and claim it all you want to, right? But the people around you don't see it. Another problem with being your own authority is there's a lot of responsibility and consequences that come with being your own authority. All of a sudden, the pressure's on. You better get right. You're the authority. You ever been in charge in a situation and then something goes wrong? Right? What does everybody's heads do? Turn to you. The pressure's on, right? And the final thing I would say, the problem with being the authority, is that oftentimes we think the decisions that we want to make are the best decision, and then years later they find out that they weren't good decisions at all. Because we can't see the future. And we don't have all the knowledge that you need to have. In, in other words, we're not omnipotent, omniscient, um, omnipresent, or good, or holy. All of those things that God is. You want an authority that has those capacities. To be everywhere at all times and know everything, and also to be holy and good. And if we're honest, we're not any of those things. We wouldn't be a good authority. And then secondly, all those things, I said the thirdly, rather the cultural implications, the fact that it doesn't work even if you could get it, and then the fact that the Bible says we're diseased with rebellion. Even from almost every single week, we come back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 and 3 in, in, in whatever given sermon is being preached. They're that vital for us to understand. God makes one command. You must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil or you will die. Die. Life was pretty amazing. God was the authority before sin came into the world. Life was amazing. Plentiful. Flourishing. God walked with them in the cool in the garden in the cool day. Everything was flourishing, and then sin entered the world. And listen to the temptation to Eve, Genesis chapter 3. Or excuse me, listen to the temptation, Genesis chapter 3, verse 5, from the serpent. You must not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, or you will, or excuse me, uh, for God knows when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and listen to this, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. What's the temptation? The fruit looked good to eat? Absolutely. But what was the bigger temptation? You can throw off the yoke of God and be your own authority. 
That was the temptation. You can be your own authority. You don't just eat from the tree. That's what made it appealing. And so then her eyes were opened, right? Her, Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to die and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took it. And at that moment, sin and death entered the world. Sin, death, decay entered the world uh, in, in that moment. And from that forward, every child of Adam and Eve and the children and the children and the children of the offspring and generations were diseased with this nature when they're born to natural rebellion. Okay, What's the first word out of a kid's mouth a lot of times? Mine. Right? We have it inside of us. And then that diseased nature that we get, that sinful nature, will then produce acts of rebellion against God and other people for the rest of our lives. And we all could write a book about it, just in our own little existences. Okay? That is the disease that we are. And the rest of human history, is the, the rest of the Bible's history and human history is the story of man's continual rebellion against God over and over and over and over again. And how God lovingly brings them back under his authority. And that's what we're going to talk about today. Okay? In other words, the freedom from authority is not the kind of freedom that you want. Okay? Sounds like we need a cure. And praise the Lord, there is one. Human flourishing can only happen in submission to God's authority. Point number two, the cure for rebellion. rebellion. Is all we've been talking about the past couple weeks? The glorious God-man, Jesus Christ, came into the world to cure us of this disease of sin and rebellion. And he did, Christ is the cure. We, there, this rebellion, we deserve a traitor's death. Not only a physical death, but the wrath of God dumped out on us in full measure, full all eternity, time without end. That is the penalty that a rebel gets. And what Christ came to do is to live a life as a human, we've been talking about that, so that he could be a sacrifice, man for man. Okay? He, he came to be a sacrifice. He, lived a, he was a perfect sacrifice. He wasn't a dirty or unclean sacrifice, a perfect sacrifice. He died to atone and redeem for our sins, and then he rose again from the dead to confirm that God had accepted the sacrifice. And that we are justified or made clean. And the cross, the God-man's death, was enough for us. We'll be talking about that in a couple weeks. Romans chapter 4, verses 25 says, He was delivered over to death for our sins and raised to life for our justification. And then, in His ascension, when He went up to heaven, you can read about this in Acts chapter 1, He took His seat on the throne of the universe as the King. Okay? That's the cure. And then what he gives us is the power of his spirit to dwell in us. Foster's been talking about that the last couple of times he's preached to us. And finally gave us the ability not to rebel, but to submit and surrender to God. Okay? That's the cure. Okay? Disease and the cure. Now, I want you to imagine for a minute a world where everyone obeyed the Ten Commandments. Everyone. Okay? What would that world be like? Would that be a bad world? If there were no stealing, lying, adultery, murder, is that a bad world? 
If everyone lived out the premise of love God and love people, in fact, in Ephesians chapter 5, this very book, we, we hear submit to one another out of reverence to Christ. Love one another. Consider one another more important than self. Would that be a bad world? That would be a perfect world, right? Jesus is a cure for that. The problem is, it's not. So how should we operate now in light of that? Which gets us to the, the big question we're going to look at this morning of the delegated authority of God. How does that work? How does that work throughout the Bible as we look at specifically church leadership, okay? So two questions, all right? Two questions. How does God govern His church? How does God govern His church? Christians are commanded and hopefully delight in submitting to this king that we just talked about, who gave us the cure for the disease of rebellion. So how do we do that? How does he rule his church? How does Christ dispense? He's the king. We just talked about that on the throne. How does he dispense his authority? Okay? Human flourishing can only happen in submission to God's authority, but how does he dispense it here on earth? God's delegated authority. But first of all, let's look at how God has delegated his authority throughout the Bible, and then we'll talk about some implications and we'll wrap it up. Okay? From the beginning, even before sin, God has been delegating His authority to man. We call it the creation mandate. How God, in creating man, said, Hey, rule the earth, subdue it. Fill it with my image, be fruitful and multiply. Okay, Genesis chapter 1, in verse 28, God blessed them, Adam and Eve, and said, Be fruitful and increase the number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and out of every, every living creature that moves on the ground. you see it? Delegated authority. Before sin entered the world. God gives man question. Now let me ask you this. Who had authority? God or man? God. Who did he give it to, though? Who did he delegate it to? Man. In this instance. Okay, and then we saw that human flourishing was happening as man submitted to God and still had some delegated authority. And then sin entered the world like we talked about and messed it all up. And the rest of the story is the story about how God is slowly piecing out that authority, fulfilling itself in Christ. Let's do that very quickly. Abraham, the patriarchs, the beginning of the nation of Israel, um, and um, in Excuse me, in Exodus chapter 14, excuse me, Exodus, I don't actually have the verse listed here, but, oh, it's at chapter 3, I'm sorry. Chapter 3 and verse 14, God says to Moses, I am who I am, right? And then in verse 15, he says, uh, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. The authority structure in the beginning was these patriarchal heads. They, they were the ones that started the nation of Israel, and then, in Exodus chapter 18, we have God giving the authority to Moses and, and 70 or so elders that come from that congregation, okay? Or come from the people, right? So we have Moses, and we have the elders, and then in Exodus 19, he gives the law. And the law comes with a certain weight of authority. Exodus 19, verse 5. Now if you obey me fully and keep my command, then out of the nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you are to speak to the Israelites. Here's the point. 
In obedience to God, a good authority will lead to the human flourishing of people. This law was how we can relate to God, how we can submit to His authority. So we've got the, these elders in Exodus 18. We've got the patriarchs. Now we've got the law. Then from the law, we get the priesthood and the Levites, which were those people who would help bring people to God. They would bring this, give you the sacrifices and bring you to the Lord. So we've got prophets, Moses, given the law. We've got priests, those people connecting to God. God is delegating His authority. You following me? You tracking with me? Okay. Then we've got the period of the judges. All right, now, if you guys were here, last year we went through the period of the Judges. We went through the whole book of Judges. And if you remember any of that, you know this. It was an absolute train wreck. All right? Probably the darkest period in the history of God's people. They're constantly rebelling against uh, against the, the people, and, and God is providing them uh, leaders to deliver them out of their own sin and bring them back to God. But do you remember the tagline throughout the whole book? Judges 21, verse 25. In those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Isn't that fascinating? No authority. Everyone is their own authority. The result is miserable. Sin and misery reigns. God is preparing for a king. God delegates his authority. There was this mandate in creation to rule over the world. Then we got the patriarchs, Moses, the elders, priests and Levites, judges, and he's making preparations for a king. In 1 Samuel chapter 8, Israel sinfully requests a king. God wanted to put a king on the throne eventually, but there's, in this chapter, God is they're sinfully asking, and they ask Samuel to anoint a king, and this is what the Lord says to Samuel, 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 7, Obey the voice of the people in all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, listen to this, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Rejecting God's authority. Now in Deuteronomy chapter 17, we have a list of what kind of king God was eventually going to put on the throne. And it's a great description. He's supposed to handwrite a copy of the law and review it every single day, meditate on it in the morning and evening. He's supposed to self-sacrificially serve his people. That's the good kind of authority. But the history of the nation of Israel, unfortunately, is a bunch of bad kings. Bad king. Every now and then, good king sprinkled in there. But mostly bad kings. But he sets up this kingdom, specifically with David. He makes a promise to David in 2 Samuel chapter 7. It goes like this. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your father, I will raise, lie down with your fathers when he's dead, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom and I shall build his house for my name and I will establish his throne and his kingdom forever. That's how the New Testament ends. I mean the Old Testament rather ends in terms of delegated authority. Do you see it? Patriarchs, law, Moses, elders, priesthood, Levites, okay, ultimately in a king. And then the New Testament begins, and what we have in this passage, Ephesians chapter 1, specifically what I read in verses 20 through 23, is how Jesus is a fulfillment of all of that as a king. Okay, a fulfillment of all of that. He is a fulfillment of the patriarchs. In Acts chapter 3 and verse 13, 
the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified His servant Jesus. Okay? He's over the patriarchs. Okay? Jesus is the goal of the law. Romans chapter 10, verse 14, For Christ is the end of the law. For righteousness, He's the goal of the law. Jesus is the greater judge and deliverer. Okay? In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and verse 10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. Okay? Jesus is the greater prophet and priest. Listen to this, Hebrews chapter 3. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in this heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus was counted to be worthy of more glory than Moses. He's a greater prophet. He's a greater priest. He was a greater king. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, The Lord Jesus Christ, which He will display at the proper time, who is blessed and the only sovereign King of kings and Lord of lords. Now, you want to know why I did all that? The Old Testament stuff? All that fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the higher prophet, priest, and king? A lot of Bible verses, right? Why are we doing all that? We're drawing, as we draw to a close, I have two questions for you, Okay? Everything that we've done today is to build up to these two questions. We saw that we are diseased with rebellion, that the cure for that rebellion is only in Jesus Christ, and that God has delegated authority all throughout Scripture. Prophet, priest, king, ultimately in Jesus Christ, fulfillment of all that. Now, who has Jesus delegated his authority to? Matthew chapter 28, verse 18, he's speaking to the disciples, and he says, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them all that I've commanded you, and lo, I'll be with you to the end of the age. All authority, all that stuff we just talked about is in view in that one statement. All authority has been given to me. Everything we just talked about. All authority has been given to me. Go build the church. Okay? I'm giving the authority, delegating it to you. Now go build the church. And then this second question, that's the first question. Whom does Christ delegate his authority to? Second question, final question. How is this group of global disciples to be governed? What authority is in the church? How, what, how does that work? In Acts chapter 6, the apostles Delegate their authority to deacons to take care of some poor widows. In Acts chapter 15, there's a big decision. They need to figure out some doctrinal issues. He gathers the apostles and the elders, the leaders of the church, together to make this big decision, right? The leadership of the church. And then in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, probably the greatest summary of, of, God, of Jesus delegating to this, uh, Paul is talking to the Ephesian elders, the ones, these, these specific guys that he's writing this letter to, and he says, pay careful attention to yourselves and all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, listen to this, which he obtained with his own blood. Who's he delegated that authority to? Church officers. That was the point. Now we're going to spend the rest of our time as we move through this series talking about what does that need to look like? Who do they need to be? How do they need to live? What are they doing? All that kind of stuff. 
But at the onset of it, what I wanted to show you is that God's been doing all of this for a long time and climaxed it out in Jesus Christ. And then Jesus, with that authority, is delegating it. A few implications as we close this morning. Number one, God is the authority. And God has given us His Word. And we're going to talk about how leaders in the church don't have authority. I don't have authority based on my position. I don't have authority based on my experience. Elders don't have authority based on their knowledge or wisdom. We have authority based on the Word of God alone. And our job as shepherds is simply to hold you accountable to it, our authority. We are simply under shepherds. The image that you need to have in your mind is sheepdogs. We just listen to the shepherd and do what he says. We don't have the authority. It is delegated to us through the Word of God and we ultimately hold you accountable to the shepherd, not to us. Does that make sense? We're going to unpack that more as we go throughout the week. Second implication. God's authority is so much better than your authority. It just is. Every time God's people assume sole authority over their lives, the result is pain and misery. Every time. And then the final thing I would say is that you were built for delegated authority. The creation mandate applies to you. In 1 Timothy chapter 3, he says this, The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer or elder, he desires a noble task. Okay? That you were actually created to hold some of that authority, to carry some of that weight in God's grace and power. Okay? So, human flourishing can only happen in submission to God's authority. The word for the year that I've been thinking about is surrender. And we typically think of that as a bad term, like you're giving up, right? But in this context, it's a term of great blessing. You and I have been in rebellion against the king. And what surrender looks like is you lay down your arms and you say, I'm willing to surrender and to follow you, your authority, and also the ones that you've delegated. And that is the call for us as believers in Christ. Surrender to the King. Follow His leadership. For those of you investing whether or not you want to be a Christian at all, you won't find a better authority than the Lord Jesus Christ. You certainly won't find it in yourself. And as we consider church leadership together, let us understand this, that Jesus is the only authority, and flourishing is found in following obeying and surrendering to Him alone. Amen? Amen. Father in heaven, as we close our service this morning, we would simply ask, God, that you would help us. It seems strange to utter these words, but we will find flourishing in submission to your authority. So help us do that. Initially, if we're meeting you for the first time, or if we've been following you for a long time, we ask in Jesus' name.